song just moves me in a place. God is doing something. Before we read the passage, I just want to express the honor, uh, the privilege that I feel to be here with you this morning. For those of you who I haven't met, and the church continues to grow and evolve, and perhaps there's a lot of you, my name is Oscar Medina. I'm an elder here at Strong Tower. I remember, sometimes it seems like yesterday, sometimes it seems like a lifetime ago, 10 years ago when I first met Ben, and my heart was moved that this was where myself and my family were to make a community. It's been a blessing for us. Let's read the Word of God so I can let you guys sit, <laughs> and I appreciate you, those who are able to stand, uh, standing for God's Word. We're continuing in our, in our um, series on Samuel, 2 Samuel, and we're in chapter 7 today. And so reads the Word of God. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we're grateful for your presence with us today. And we pray, Lord, that as we sing, hopefully, that you are doing something right now, that you would work in our hearts and in our minds to bring your word to bear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. Uh, please go ahead and Grab a seat, get comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I get tired too. Plans go wrong sometimes, don't they? You know, actually, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a colleague at work, and uh, we're, we're planning, actually, tomorrow, I'm off to a big conference where I'm leading some, some seminars. I'm a little nervous about that. <laughs> it kind of got into my sermon prep time. But... Uh, we were talking about a big conference that he was leading. This was over in the UK, and he had some big highfalutin speakers that were going to be present. And somehow, plans will go wrong, as often happens. Marketing got some things wrong, and at the time of the event, like 15 minutes before, only 15 people had shown up. They were expecting 200. They had paid quite a, a lot of money to get this big, important speaker to come. It would be incredibly embarrassing. And to his career, probably a limiting move. So he came up with an idea. Let's see what you think. He went out to the store and bought uh, 10 cases of beer and set up a sign that said, free beer. <laughs> and in 15 minutes, he had 200 people. 
I'm not, I'm not encouraging this as a church growth methodology, <laughs> just to be clear, but it worked for... Now, you know, the thing, I don't think he ever told the speaker that 185 of the people listening had no idea what he was talking about. But it's amazing how we find ways to work around to make our plans work. So we read a passage, and in this passage, let me, let me just set some context. And first of all, I mean, I, I don't remember if Ben addressed this in talking about Samuel. Have you ever wondered why we have 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd uh, Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles? You know, really, it's, it's, they're both, they're, all three of them are just single books. Don't really understand why they got split apart, probably because they didn't fit in the, in the scrolls. But it's really one continuous story, all three of them. It's three books, it's not six. And so in Samuel, you know, the first seven uh, chapters talk about the prophet Samuel and his story. And then the rest of what we know as 1 Samuel is about Saul. And then 2 Samuel is all about David. And so here we have in this context, and, and we've, we've followed the whole story. We've been, we've been here, we've been listening to Ben and others uh, teach about what, what happens throughout this historical book. And so now we're at a point where David is finally settled. He, he's gone through all the tumult, you know, he's gone through, uh, you know, everything that has come before, you know, the, the whole Goliath thing, the whole hiding from Saul in a cave while he's on the potty, you know, all of that stuff. And, and, and now we're, we're at a part where he has gotten recognized and acknowledged to the point that other people are sending this expensive cedar wood to make sure he's got a palace to live in. And he's looking around. He's finally got some time to just sit. Maybe he's a little bored. And he sees the tattered flaps of that old tent that Israel's been using for hundreds of years. And he had a good idea. Nathan, man of God, prophet, he thought it was a good idea. It was an honorable thought. Hey, I've been acknowledged, you know, I've been accepted, I've been recognized. I got people from all over sending me their wealth to acknowledge that I am king. Why isn't God honored? You know, Nathan thinks, hey, this kid's got a good track record. You know, he's been honorable, he's been good. I'm sure his plans are fine. He tells, he tells David, you know what, go with it. Go do it. See, the thing that we need to remember is David was really good at fighting David was really good at running. David was excellent at hiding. He wasn't so good at sitting. Remember that time he was sitting up on his roof and he was looking around and there was this young woman on next door also on the roof. You remember? Remember what happened with that? Bathsheba, you know that whole story. He wasn't so good at sitting around. He wasn't so good at having achieved things to be able to wait on God to, for what's next. So he came up with a plan. And he said, you know, it's time we honor God as well. A lot of us have similar shortcomings, don't we? You know, we, uh, we, we imagine we could work out our own plans. We, uh, we like doing but not being. As a matter of fact, a lot of us think that's what our faith is about. It's about doing the right things. 
It's about coming here on a Sunday morning. Or it's about giving money, or it's about saying certain prayers, or sitting, singing certain songs. Or maybe it's about how you think about certain things, or your judgment about people who don't do the things that we all acknowledge are the right things to do. But we forget that it's about being in the character of Christ. So, so imagine David now, imagine him that night, he goes to bed, and you know, he, I'm sure he was a part of the construction of his palace. I, I mean, I could see him climbing up on, on the beams and, and looking at everything. Can, can you see that? You know, and where are we going to put the bedroom, and where are we going to put the stairs to the balcony? You know, want to be sure I have a good view. Uh, you, you can see him participating in that. And I could see him going to sleep that night thinking about the next project to come. But now the thing is, when, when you think about him looking at that tattered tent and saying, why is God uh, not in a, in a palace like mine? Really, um, basically he's saying he's better housed than God is. Think about that. He's saying, I got it better than God does. Imagine a, a kid, you know, he grows up in his parents' home, and one day he says, Mom and Dad, thank you, you know, you looked after me, you know, you cleaned my diapers, you loved me, you taught me, you sent me off to college, and now I got a great career, and I got a wonderful house. As a matter of fact, my house is so much better than yours, I'm going to make you a house because yours stinks and mine doesn't. It's kind of what David's saying. I've achieved all this, and I got this great palace, now let me take care of your God. Yeah, and, and really, it's kind of patronizing, isn't it? It's kind of self-congratulatory. It's kind of like he's, he, he's seeing what, what he's been able to achieve through God's help, and he thinks, for some reason, that God needs his help. Servants of God sometimes get it wrong, don't they? I mean, even in the stories in the book of Samuel, I mean, we remember Eli, when Hannah came to pray in misery about her condition, he thought she was drunk. Servants of God sometimes get it wrong. And then Samuel, even later on, when he sent off to, to the sons of Jesse to find who would be the anointed king, he, he sees the first one and sees, that's the one. And God says, no, no, it isn't. And then uh, David, you remember, when he got offended at Nabal, who was a pompous man, he was ready to kill him until Abigail reminded him who he was. Yeah, servants sometimes get it wrong. Men are at best, even the best of men are at best just men. You have to be careful how we choose our heroes. So David had achieved so much, and he's got this plan for God and God's best interest. That obviously God hadn't thought about this. You know, maybe he's too busy, you know, saving everybody, you know. So let me, let me step in for you, God. You know, and really, it's easy to fall into that frame of thought as we go about our lives. We see things around us, and, and we think we know what's best, not just for ourselves, but for everyone around us. I wonder what kind of house you're building. 
I wonder what kind of plans you have for everyone in your life and perhaps for God. So David goes to sleep, dreaming of his project, but Nathan had a little bit of a different night, didn't he? Nathan had a little conversation because God had notes for him. You see, uh, Nathan and David were missing God's perspective. And so in the passage, I'm going to read now um, from where we left off. Let's see, starting with verse 8. Let me find myself. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall be a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. So God, God's got notes, and He starts out by reminding Nathan where this, where He took this kid from. But uh, you notice that in the narrative, the narrator calls David the king. All the places where there's references to David. The narrator says, the king, the king, the king. When God speaks, he says, my servant. See, God's perspective is a little different. And Nathan's starting to get that, that he, he kind of messed up a little bit. He kind of shot the gun a little bit because he was missing God's perspective. <laughs> David, is, as a result of this, is only beginning to grasp the kind of God that he worshipped. See, God is saying, my people... If they are in a tent, I'm going to live in a tent. See, this is the kind of God who travels by public transportation. This is the kind of God who eats at McDonald's, who, who shops at Walmart or the corner bodega. He, he's, he's saying, you want to build me a house? How cute. I planted those cedars. I made them grow. Heavens cannot contain me. You want to put me in a house? That's adorable. You know, the New Testament uh, kind of reminds us of some of this. You remember Stephen, just before he was murdered, he, he, he's, he's one of the deacons, uh, uh, preaches, so deacons get your sermons ready, right? Of course, you know, you might want to be careful because after Stephen preached, he got murdered, you know, so. 
a little warning there, <laughs> but Stephen, Stephen preached, and in his sermon he says, God does not dwell in houses made by hands. That's in Acts 7, 48. And then Paul, when he goes to, to Athens, and he, and he finds that one statue, and he, and he starts talking on that, he says, God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man. So God is saying, he wants to build me a house? Well, let him know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make him a house. You catch the difference there? See, David is talking about a physical structure. Of course, we know the history. We know that the actual temple wasn't built until the time of Solomon. Don't really need to address that, because that's not what God is talking about. God's not talking about a structure, a building. He's not saying, no, David, it's not for you to do, it's for your son to do. He's talking about a dynasty that he will build starting with the seed of David. See, if I were to take a survey about what we believe is probably the most important passage in the Old Testament, we'd probably get a lot of answers. You know, maybe we'd get the creation passages, maybe we'd get the Noah's Ark, maybe we'd get Psalm 23 or maybe Isaiah 53, talking about uh, prophecy of the Messiah. Maybe we'd get some wonderful stories, David and Goliath, or Samson, or Esther, or Jonas, or Job. But I think it's this one. I think it's this passage right here. Because here is where we can, for the first time, see clearly the scope of God's grace. His plans laid out for all eternity out of David will come a seed that will be the king of kings, the savior of all times for all peoples, all nations, all creations throughout eternity. Man, you don't get bigger than that. He's telling David, you see tattered tents? I see tattered souls. You want to unify Israel? I want to redeem all creation. You want to be a good king? I'm going to show you the king of kings and lord of lords. You want to build a palace that will fall one day? I want to establish a throne forever. Back then, every religion had this kind of unwritten deal with their de deities, with their little g-gods. You know, basically, you know, some leader rose up, maybe he won a battle, maybe he gathered a lot of soldiers and armies. They would build a temple. And in building that temple, they guaranteed the help of their God. Or maybe they would do that after they won the big battle. And that was the whole deal. I build you a temple, you bless me. And God is rewriting the script. So, no, 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 I don't want none of your temples. I'll tell you what, I'm going to build you a house, and then I'm going to bless you on top of that. David's plans, he had them, but his perspective... His thoughts were way down here. You see, God is talking about the promise of a Messiah. God is talking about a king who will be raised up from out of his descendants, his family. A different kind of king than what he knew, than what he had experienced, than what he was even able to do. Now, one note, at this point where, where God is speaking, they still had no concept of the suffering servant. I mentioned Isaiah 53. They still had no concept that this King of Kings and Lord of Lords would also be a suffering servant. 
But they were expecting, and in this passage, it's laid out, there is someone who God is planning this coming. God is building a house for all peoples, all nations, all creations. Once you understand God's perspective, you can start to rest in hope. You know, let's be real. You may not understand why God has said no to your plan, why things aren't as you expected, as you think they ought to be, as you want them to be. You may not understand. Honestly, you may never understand. But let me put it this way. Remember that little donkey in Jerusalem that the disciples brought to Jesus? You ever consider what made that little donkey special? There's only one thing. The guy riding on his back. And so, we may be like the poor little donkey. I didn't use the three-letter word, right? So don't <laughs> we may be like that poor little donkey that we're, we feel like we're being dragged around and why, where, what's going on. But once that guy's sitting on our back, we find our purpose. We find what makes us special. We experience the fingerprint of God in a way that perhaps we never expected to. We learned two things from, from Samuel. We learned that we need a king. But we also learned that as good as David is, he's just not good enough. No king can get it done. We learn that, and this passage, it becomes clear to us. There's something beyond. And second, we learn about repentance. And especially in looking at the comparison between Saul and David. They both made mistakes. They both were fallible. They both were broken and, and frail. Saul did not repent, and David did. So, we've talked about um, David's house. We've talked about God's house. One is too small. One is too simplistic. One is too shallow. The other is way beyond our comprehension. The best we can do with that one is just hold on. I titled our message today Between Two Houses because that's where we are. We have our, our own perhaps broken, unfulfilled dreams that we are working so hard to make real that we invented out of the air or perhaps someone imposed on us. And then we have God's incredible, amazing plans for all creation. And it might be easy to feel lost between those two houses. But thankfully in this passage, um, we see there's a, there's a place in between. There's a land within and, and the example comes with David's own reaction. So I'd like to read uh, first verses 18 through 20. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's heart for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. And then jumping down to verse 25. And now, 
O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And then verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. So real quick as we finish up, I just want to talk about what it looks like to be in between, in between the two houses, between our broken, faulty, simplistic plans and God's majestic plans for all eternity, between is us and how we respond to a loving God that we can barely comprehend. And it starts with what, how David starts. Who am I? Who am I before you? He remembers where he came from. You know, sometimes we remember so we can brag. You know, we talk about lifting ourselves up from our boosters. You know, I remember, uh, I remember in first grade being told by my teacher in front of my mom, who I had to translate for, that I was retarded because I couldn't read as well as other kids and I needed to be sent to a special school. I, I remember that. Uh, when I graduated eighth grade, I, I, I received an award and I went back to her because I remembered that, to show her that I got an award. And she saw me and she said, I always knew you could do it. And I was like, so tall. <laughs> I remember growing up in a projects building, you know, one of those tenement housing, um, going up the stairs, the smell of urine, uh, climbing over drug addicts and alcoholics. I remember both my parents, neither one of them got past fourth grade. And at a certain point, them being unable to really help me with homework and not really visiting my teachers because they didn't know what to say and had a hard time communicating. I remember feeling as I finished high school and felt a call to ministry that there was really nothing else I could do. I felt called to that, but I never imagined that I could like, actually have a profession outside of that. I remember thinking uh, that that community, what I lived in, was, was all there is. And, and I, think, I think of David, who grew up as the youngest kid sent to take care of the sheep. And yet he had to kill lions and bears. And I remember all that he has gone through, and he's remembering it here. All that he's gone through, and, and seeing how, and every single step, God was there in some inscrutable way. God was there forming him, shaping him, building his character. Because those lions and bears that was unfair for him to meet as a young boy was preparation for what he would meet as a man. And why did I grow in such humble circumstances? And why did I see so many of my friends fall by the wayside? I don't know. But I know God had a plan. And so David's saying, who am I? And he says further, everything that I've accomplished, all the greatness that I may imply, is very little to you. <laughs> you know, it really is important for us to put in perspective who we are before God. And acknowledge his greatness. Acknowledge who he is. From our perspective, from our point of view, we see our achievements. From God's point of view, he's looking for our surrender. So, 
um, you know, we can do great things. It always takes my breath away when I see great beauty of artists. I love going to museums. I love reading wonderful works of literature. I'm moved and inspired by them. I'm moved by beautiful pieces of music that just stir my heart. I'm entranced by studying science and technology. I made, I made a career out of it. I'm inspired by the dedication of healers and teachers and pastors and missionaries. But we need to remember, in the end, we are creations of God, made by him, and put in a world that enables the possibility of being used in a way that he could bless to bless others. And so you may be at a point in your life where you're busy with frantic efforts and you think they're not working. Are you ready to respond to God? With, who am I? So the second thing that David says in verse 25 is, he kind of says, let it be. You remember that song by the Beatles? came out in 1972. I, I actually uh, read a thing that there was a conflict between Paul McCartney, who wrote the song, Let It Be, and John Lennon. See, apparently the story goes that uh, Paul McCartney wrote it because he was troubled, upset, and he wasn't able to sleep, and he had dreams. And in the dream, he says that in a very, very alive way, very real way, he, he sensed his mother uh, coming to him and says, just let it be. And he woke up in the morning, and the song came to him, and he wrote it. But John Lennon, who had a problem with religion, assumed, as many others did, that Mother Mary was uh, the, the mother of, of Jesus. And it wasn't. That was his mom's name. And so they always had arguments about it. John Lennon didn't like it. But Let It Be became a wonderful song that speaks to many today, even today. David is saying it. And, and, you know, really, between realizing that your plans are flawed and God's plans are so much higher, there is a place of humility and surrender. Now, that doesn't mean it's a place to lie down and die. Mary is famous for those wonderful songs, Let It Be To Me According To Your Words. And yet, right after that, she gets up and goes to visit her cousin, and in the process of that visit, utters this wonderful song that really plays throughout eternity. Surrendering and having the humility to acknowledge and say, let it be according to your will, God, is not giving up. It's surrendering to better plans. Getting here doesn't mean you're done. It means you can finally get started. You've dug yourself into a hole. Maybe it's time to stop digging. You've been going the wrong direction. Maybe it's time to turn around. The last thing that David says, and with this we'll be finishing up, he says, you are God. Now, you know, God didn't need a reminder, did he? But that final thought is total commitment to what God is saying. You are God and, and I'm not. He's saying, I want to live in consistency with your word. David is learning that until and unless you get to the point where you say, thy will be done, you are just setting yourself up for pain. See, God teaches when we say no. 
And I'm not talking about kindergarten level lessons here. We're talking graduate school. Graduate school Christianity. Grappling, grappling with God. Struggling with the pain of broken dreams, of feeling lonely, of feeling misdirected, of feeling perhaps a loss of purpose. That's graduate school Christianity. But if you understand this grappling, if you understand that we serve a God who stands by the wayside and who's saying, I have a way for you that you may not understand, I have plans to bless you. I have a plans to establish a throne for all eternity, and you are a part of that. You are included. My son died for you. Then you can begin the process of stopping to dig the wrong things. Stopping to walk in the wrong direction. And turn around and head towards God. And say, let it be your God. Not that. Welcome to graduate school. Lord God, we're grateful for your word. And we're grateful, Lord, for the story of David and how you moved in his life. And that we have his example of surrender and of humility. And of acknowledging your lordship despite the title that he carried as king. And we, fa we fancy ourselves kings and queens of our own lives. Help us likewise to surrender. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we uh, sing one more song, I invite the prayer team to come forward. They'll be